Welcome to the Bedford Alliance Church Bible Reading Plan Podcast. I'm Luke Cugino, your discipleship pastor and host. This podcast follows along with our church-wide reading plan, which walks you through the entire New Testament and gives you an overview of the Old Testament. Join us as we dive into God's life-changing Word together. I would like to welcome everybody back to our BAC podcast. Um, Today, I'll be talking about Romans 9. Um, My name is Ryan, and um, if you follow the podcast, Luke is not with me today, so I'm all by myself. But in this podcast, I'm going to be dealing with uh, Romans 9. It's a very controversial chapter. It can be a very difficult subject to talk about. Um, Many people are confused by it. So, My goal is to help clarify the text. Now, I know that there's a lot of different views out there uh, concerning the text. I mean, I'm okay with that. I'm just going to do my best in presenting what I believe is uh, what the text is saying. Uh, I always remember, personally, nobody died and made me king, so it's not like I have all the answers, but I'll do my best. Uh, I also like to give credit, or if you're listening to this, just some materials that you might want to look at. A book that I found to be very good is Chosen But Free by Norman Geisler. Another book, just to give credit and help, is uh, Getting the Gospel Right by Gordon Olson. Also through this, you know, there's different podcasts that you can always Google and listen to if you want more information. Now, the approach towards understanding or interpreting theology, there's different type approaches. Now, one thing I would like to talk about is the difference between deductive reasoning and inductive reasoning. Now, I know you're probably listening to this and thinking, oh my goodness, is this what he's getting into? But if you stick with me, I think it all makes some sense. Deductive reasoning is what we call a top-down approach. I used to be a math teacher. I was a high school math teacher for 10 years. Mathematics uses much deductive reasoning. What you do is you start with a premise. From that premise, you deduce from it. Now, this isn't really a perfect example. I mean, I put this together, so just give me a little grace, but just to give you an idea of deductive reasoning, uh, let's say we, we start off with the premise, God is sovereign, and then we start to deduce from that statement, God is sovereign. Well, if God is sovereign, then that means he decrees all things. If God decrees all things, he's going to determine who is elect because he's sovereign and he decrees. If God decrees determines who is elect, then those who are elected are simply based on God's choosing before they are born and have really nothing to do with the process. See, this gives the idea of how, in a sense, um, deductive reasoning works. The thing with deductive reasoning, especially in Scripture, it can sound very good and it can actually sound very logical, but can get us in a lot of trouble. So, for example, working with some, or there are some theology uh, ideas out there that They believe God is so sovereign that, in a sense, there's no such thing as free will. Um, God isn't even really a truly loving God. He simply picks some people to go to heaven, elects them, and therefore others he doesn't. I have heard people say under that type of thinking that really none of us deserve to go to heaven. So if God simply even chooses some, that's great. The only problem is I don't think that takes the entire Word of God um, together. So deductive reasoning works well in math and science, but can get us trouble in theology. Uh, 
just give you some examples of things I was taught in seminary. I remember I, I was being taught that as humans we are totally depraved. Now, I would agree with that, but it depends on what it means by totally depraved. And so what they would share is we're totally depraved. That means we are spiritually dead. Again, I agree with that. But then they say because we're spiritually dead, we cannot respond to God. Why? Because we're dead. Therefore, God has to regenerate a person first because they're dead so that then they can have faith that they can respond to him. And an example oftentimes is given is this idea is if someone is drowned, they're dead in the water, and someone throws them a life preserver, can they grab it? Of course, they can't even grab it. They're dead. So God has to bring life to them first before they can even respond. Now, the logic might sound good, but there's nowhere in Scripture where we see this order, where regeneration comes before faith. It's always faith, then regeneration. And so this is that idea of deductive reasoning. Now, I think when we look at scriptures, the best way that we can put it together is not through deductive reasoning, but it's more inductive reasoning. This is the bottom-up approach. It moves from examples to a general conclusion. So it takes all the data points and then draws a general conclusion for the data points. The more data, the better the conclusion can be drawn. So let me give you some examples. The scripture shows that God is in control. He's sovereign. We also know as humans we have free will. We also know that humans will not respond to God without him calling us. God desires that none should perish. We also know that God is love. The scripture says, for God so loved the world. We know he wishes that none, uh, like I say, would perish. And what we do is we take all these data points, bring them together, and try to draw some type of conclusion from it. So my concern with some of the theological frameworks out there is they might have this, like, sounds like sound, very logical, deductive reasoning, but it doesn't incorporate all of Scripture. As I said before, if God simply elects without our choice, why would he not elect all people? If he wishes that none would perish and love God, or love the, um, wishes that none would perish and he loves the world, it doesn't make sense. So what about verses that indicate that there's a free will given to humans? So we have to put together our theology that encompasses the entire scripture. So if you're on track with your reading, you have read or you soon will be reading Romans 9. Now again, Romans 9 is very confusing. It seems like God is simply choosing people for salvation without any involvement on their part. In fact, he seemed to elect or choose them before they were born and whether they had done good or bad. God simply loved Jacob and hated Esau before they were born. He hardens Pharaoh's heart so he can accomplish his will. And then he says, you know, he has mercy on who he has mercy. And it almost seems like the opposite then. If he doesn't have mercy on someone, then he doesn't have mercy. And if anyone were to talk to God and say, well, that seems wrong or unfair, who are you to talk back to God? I mean, in a sense, God is God, and if he wants to make you a vessel to dishonor, I mean, who's going to tell him that he's wrong? So this can come across as a very difficult chapter, very confusing. The idea, if you're chosen by God, be thankful, for none of us deserve his mercy and grace anyways. It appears you are chosen or not chosen. It's simply God who makes the decision. It appears from the reading that God is sovereign and this is important, unconditionally elects individuals for salvation. 
unconditionally means that this is he does it without any type of condition he's the one who's going to determine it now this is where we have to look at inductive reasoning there are verses that tell us that god loves the world there are verses that tells us that god desires that none should perish so when we take a look at this chapter we have to put together all the pieces so beginning it um, in, in the chapter in Romans 9, we need a little bit of context. Now, if you listen to some of our older podcasts, remember that Paul is in Corinth, and his desire is to head to Rome. Uh, he's not been in Rome, so before he writes the book of Romans, he is going to send a letter to them, this book. And his goal is eventually to get to Spain. Now, to him, Spain is the farthest part of the known world. Paul had not yet been to Rome, and he desired to eventually get to Spain. Now, how did the church of Rome start? Now, tradition says that Peter preached, but there, there really is no evidence for that. It, it's possible. We just don't know with certainty. But we do know at Pentecost there were Jews from all over the Roman world who came to Jerusalem to celebrate. And it was on Pentecost, so we look at Acts 2, that God moved in a very powerful way. We see the disciples were starting to speak in tongues, and so the Jews heard the message in their own national tongue. And I remember, these Jews were scattered throughout the entire known world. So many came to know the Lord, and they headed back to their respected areas. Some would have gone back to Rome. And eventually, a church began to grow in this area. It would have began to grow in Rome. Now, it would have started off as a Jewish church, but eventually with the ministry of Paul and other Gentiles, there would be converts, and converts then would migrate to Rome. So there became this Jew-Gentile church. Now, in 41 AD, Emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome. They had to leave. Now, if you remember Priscilla and Aquila, Priscilla and Aquila uh, lived in Rome. They had to move because of this edict. They're going to go to Corinth. They're in Corinth. They're going to train and teach Apollos, and they are eventually going to meet with the Apostle Paul. Now, you have a church in Rome, and in Rome it was both Jew and Gentile, start off Jew, now Jew and Gentile, and now the Jews have just been kicked out of Rome. So the church's dynamics are going to change. The environment's going to change. So the church started one way, but now it's going to be made up of Gentile Christians. Now, under Nero, so Claudius dies, now Nero comes to the throne, and he uh, allows the Jews to return back to Rome. So they did, and the Jewish Christians and the church, they go back to the church and they begin to realize things have certainly changed a lot. It's moved from a Jewish church to a Gentile church. Now, the Jewish Christians were no longer running the church, and they probably at this time felt a little marginalized. Now, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of questions that are going on. They began to wonder what has happened to the nation of Israel. God gave all these promises to the Jews in the Old Testament. Now, now what's going on? What's happened to these promises? If Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, why did not more Jews accept him? In fact, it seems like most Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Does the nation of Israel even have a future? 
how is this transition of the nation of Israel as God's chosen people to now the church, which compromises both Jew and Gentile? See, there, were, there was a real Jew and Gentile issue in the Roman church. And so these, if you read the book, you're going to see the problems keep surfacing throughout the entire epistle or throughout the entire letter. So we have to understand a little bit of the context going into Romans 9. Now here becomes the main question that we need to look at and consider. Is the passage, is the chapter, Romans 9, and really we'd say 9, 10, and 11, is the text discussing unconditional election of the individual? meaning that the individual really had no choice in the matter, they were just chosen by God? Or is God's dealing with Israel um, corporately or as a nation? Is that what the text is about? So let me repeat that because this is important. Is the text discussing unconditional election of the individual, meaning that the individual had no choice in the matter, they're just chosen by God? Or is it dealing with God's are God's dealing with Israel corporately or as a nation? So this is what we have to look at. We're going to have to discern. Now, when we read chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, Paul begins to share his burden for his own people. Now, we know that probably some of the Jewish Christians felt abandoned, and they were probably upset with the apostle Paul because he talked about how he was an apostle or a disciple to the Gentiles. Now, Paul, you know, they began to wonder, what about our 2,000 years plus promises that have been made to Israel? Has, has the word of God been negated? Has God abandoned Israel? And so listen to what Paul says, starting in verse 1. I tell you the truth in Christ, and I am not lying. My conscience also bearing witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. I mean, Paul here, he's even saying this. He wishes he was accursed. He's saying, I would rather go to hell if it means my brethren, my Israelites, could come to know Christ. I mean, this is pretty strong language. But if you notice, he gives a list here about Israel. And it says, to whom pertain the adoption. Well, uh, then it says, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving law, the services of God, and the promises. All of these things have been given to the Israelites, to Israel. Adoption. Israel was adopted nationally. And in Exodus 24, it actually says, Israel, God is saying this, is my first son. So this deals with a national relationship that God has with this nation. It also says the glory. I mean, God placed his glory, his glory in that nation. Think about the the temple, and the Shekinah glory, where it talks about the glory of God actually entered in to the temple and also into the tabernacle. Then it talks about the covenants. It was Israel who were given the covenants from God. This pertains to Israel. We think about the Abrahamic covenant or the Davidic, the Mosaic, the Palestinian, the New Covenant. These are all covenants between a nation and God himself. 
And we know that God shared that the world would be blessed through them. It also talks about giving of the law. It was the Israelites who were given the law. What other nation can say that they got their law directly from God? Only the Jewish people. Then it talks from there, the services of God. This gives the idea, you know, of the the priesthood, the festivals. He's saying, this is how you serve me. This was all in covenant to a nation. And then talks about promises. God had made many promises to the nation of Israel. And so Paul is saying, my heart breaks for my own people. Look at all that God has given to Israel. The Messiah would come through Israel. But the problem is, most have not accepted the gospel. Why? Now, I want you to keep this in mind. Is it important to remember, if you're a Jewish person, you're living in Rome, you're reading this letter, you're coming through a different grid, and you think through lineage. Remember, God called the nation of Israel. And who was the founder of Israel? Well, it was Abraham. So remember, God called Abraham. So Abraham had Sarah. But if you remember, God... Or, sorry, not God, but Abraham started you know, struggling, worrying, thinking that God wasn't going to fulfill his promise. And so remember, um, Abraham was with, Ish, or with Hagar, and she gave birth to Ishmael. But remember, that was not the son of promise. And so God then eventually, through Sarah, they have a child, and this child's name is Isaac. So we have Abraham, Isaac. So God is saying, yes, Ishmael does come from Abraham, but he's not the promised one. And then you remember it goes Abraham, Isaac, and then Isaac has two children. They're twins, Esau and Jacob. And remember now, God is saying it's not the lineage, the promised one, the nation is not going to come through Esau, but it's going to come through Jacob. So you need to keep this in mind. Because in verses 6 through 9, God chose Israel to be the promised nation. God elected Israel. And Paul is reminding the reader, just because a person is a physical descendant of Abraham does not guarantee that they're a child of promise in which the chosen nation would come from. We know that. In 9.6, it says, For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. Remember, Ishmael can trace his lineage to Abraham. Esau can trace his lineage to Abraham and also Isaac. But the chosen nation would not come from them. They are not the elect ones. There are many who can trace their lineage back to Abraham and Jacob who are not Jews. So Paul reminds them they are not the children of promise. So Paul is, about, is speaking about Israel being elected by God, chosen by God to be his people. So Paul now is talking about lineage. He's talking about a nation. This has nothing to do with individual salvation. Now, Paul is going to speak about choosing Israel over other nations. And he talks about Jacob and Esau. Now, let me read this to you, because this is where, when talking to people, they can get very confused. So let me read, this will be verses 10 through 13. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, 
for the children not yet being born, not having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, there, this sounds like God simply chooses one for salvation before they are born, before they've even done anything. They have nothing to do with the process. And simply he loves one, hates another. I really believe this is taken out of context. Paul is pointing out that this is about elected nation. Israel would come through Jacob and not Esau. Paul is actually quoting from Genesis. So if you were a Jew then and you listened to this, you understood his thinking. So we have to go back into Genesis to actually understand the quote. So listen in Genesis 25, 23. This will hopefully make some sense to you. It says this, And the Lord said to her, now this is Rebekah, Two nations are in your room. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people. Now, this is the people of promise. This would be um, what we now say is Israel. One people shall be stronger than the other. And the older, the nation which would come from that child, shall serve the younger. Now, Paul's focus is on this is not about individuals, but upon the separation of the nation of Israel from the separation of the nation of Edom. See, Jacob, through Jacob, would be born the nation of Israel. Through Esau would be born the nation of Edom. Now, how do we know for sure this is not about individuals? Well, first of all, I think the text shows it. But a second is this. Esau is an individual never served Jacob. He didn't. And in fact, the opposite seems to be true. It appears that Jacob served Esau. We can remember um, that Jacob served Esau through the birthright. And, or Jacob gave gifts to Esau. But as a nation, as a nation, Israel conquered the Edomites under David and Solomon and continued on through generations. So what this is speaking about is God electing or choosing a nation. Then Paul quotes Malachi. Remember it says this, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That almost just sounds like as individuals, God just willy-nilly loves some people and hates others. This is not what he's talking about. It's a quote. This quote comes from Malachi, and it's Malachi 1. When we read Malachi, I think it will help put into context what is going on. So in Malachi 1, it says this, The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So he's talking to a nation, to Israel. He says this, I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, In what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness, even though Edom, now remember, Edom was the nation that came through Esau, even though Edom has said we have been impoverished, but we were to return and to build the desolate places. 
See, what happened is God showed favor to the elect nation of Israel, but not to the nation of Edom, which would be Esau's descendants. The term Jacob and Esau, Esau here are euphemisms for nations. Even today, we can use this type of terminology. Is Israel a person? Well, the answer is yes. Think of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Jacob's name was later changed to Israel. But also, is Israel a nation? And the answer is yes. So the context determines what's going on. And the context is about God calling a nation a promise. This has nothing, nothing to do with individual salvation. Then Paul is going to give us four uh, examples of God's sovereign justice in his dealings with the nation of Israel. See, people must have been saying that God is unjust in his dealings with the nation. I mean, he gave all these promises and now he's done away with them? Listen to what is said in Romans 9. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. And then he gives examples. Let's look at Moses. He says God had great mercy uh, with Moses. Okay, he didn't say this in the text here, but we know this. Because he gives the idea God has mercy on who he has mercy. God had great mercy with the nation of Israel through Moses. When Israel crafted a golden calf, remember God was going to destroy that nation, and he was going to start all over again with Moses. But Moses pleaded with God, and God forgave the nation and showed them mercy. Paul is actually quoting Exodus 33:19. Listen to what it says. Then he, talking about God, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, Here is my place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be, while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I'll take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. See, the issue is the continuance of God's gracious and compassion favor upon the nation of Israel through their leader Moses. The Exodus text has nothing to do with individual or unconditional election of salvation. The next example that Paul is going to talk about is Pharaoh and the Exodus. Now, it is understood that each of the plagues that come against Pharaoh are actually coming against an idolatrous nation. And Pharaoh was actually worshipped as a god. Now, if you remember, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But this is what we call judicial hardening. In the text, when we look in Exodus, over and over you begin to see at first, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then you begin to see a change where it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. We couldn't call this judicial hardening. It's God giving over to a person what they already are. And I think in this text, God is trying to say, or, or Paul is saying, God is in control. He is going to use a person, whether they do good or whether they do evil, to accomplish his own will. Even think about Judas. Judas, by his own volition, chose to betray Jesus but God used Jesus and his evil heart to accomplish his own desires and will. 
And remember, when Paul writes, he hardens whom he desires, it sounds like God just says, I'm going to make a person like a Hitler. That's not what he's talking about. It deals with God giving the person over to his own depraved mind. Now, a third example that Paul is going to talk about is Jeremiah's story of the potter's wheel. In Romans eleven nineteen, it says, You will say to me then, now this is the objector's comment, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? Now remember, this is not Paul's words. He's quoting an objector. And the objector in the idea is like saying this, if God has already decided to set Israel aside in favor of the church, how can Israel be blamed? And how can Jews resist the will of a sovereign God who had made his choice? So Paul uses this potter's wheel to explain this objection. Now, to look at a little background, if you go back into Jeremiah, Jeremiah 18, Jeremiah is watching a potter uh, on a potter's wheel, or he has clay on a potter's wheel, and the potter is making some vessel. And the potter is forming the soft clay. And depending on the quality of the clay determines the vessel. The pot had not yet gone to the kiln. It had not been set. Its form has not been fixed. And the point God is going to be making to Jeremiah is that the nation of Israel is clay in God's hands. And the nation's future is contingent upon their response. Look what it actually says in Jeremiah. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hands, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If the nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. He continues and writes this, Now therefore speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now every run from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. Israel is in God's hand. And because they have chosen to disobey God, they have been prepared for destruction. But if they repent, see, it's not set. If they will repent, God will relent. So Paul is teaching the people in Rome, God has sovereign right as a potter to use Israel for over 2,000 years and set them aside in favor of the church. He is just in doing that. He's God. And the fourth example he's going to talk about is Hosea. Now, because of time, I need to start wrapping this up. But chapter divisions were not in Paul's writings. These were added later. Romans 9 through 11 is really one flow. And Paul begins to emphasize upon the universal call of the gospel to all people. And we'll see this in Romans 10. But listen to what he says. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. 
For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the name of the Lord is over all, is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be be saved. Conclusion, Paul's readers in the first century had no problem understanding his references were about corporate Israel in Romans 9. Because they thought through this grid and because Paul was discussing the Jew-Gentile issue. Romans 9 is not about unconditional election of an individual, but it's addressing a nation of Israel that it was elected by God, called by God, and would be later removed by God. Does God love everyone? Well, the scripture says God is love. We, will, we also know in John 3.16 it says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his Son. We know that while we were still sinners, Christ died for, for us. In Matthew 5.44, it talks about um, how we are to love our enemies. Are we required to love people that God does not love? Of course not. God has love for all people, but not everybody is going to be saved. We do know that God is angry with the wicked. But we also know he loves people, and he's calling people to himself. So remember, Romans 9 may seem very confusing, but he's not talking about individuals here, but he's talking about a nation of Israel. That's what he's answering, and he's explaining how they were elect by God, but now how God had set them apart uh, at this time for what we now call the church age. Remember this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. 